Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So where are we going this time, Bob? E is for Brian Eno. Well, to be uh, completely correct about this, Bob, Brian Peter George St. John Le Baptiste de la Salle Eno. Well said. Uh, yeah, easy for me to say. Mm. And before we go any further, uh, we have mentioned these previously. We will get to them a little bit later on chronologically. Uh, but Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt both famously invented what was called the oblique strategy cards, yes. didn't they? Yes, yes. Uh, and I've actually bought a set. Now, you're quite jealous, aren't you, Bob? I am, because I tried to buy a set uh, years ago, and they were all sold out. And every time I go to buy a set, they're still sold out. They just go immediately. Mm. And uh, yeah, so they reprint them every now and then, but not often enough. No, they don't. So only special people have them. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But anyway, I get your point, Mark. But so, uh, all right then, go on, mate. No, I was just going to say, they are essentially a series of unusual instructions that you could take in an artistic way. Yeah, and, and, and we've, like, brave broadcasters as we are, podcasters, if yeah. you like, then we've decided that what we're going to do is actually go into the box. Yes. We're going to pull out some of the different cards... And But we need to have some kind of honesty and sincerity about this, Bob, because there's no point in pulling these out and then just saying, all right, this is what Eno and Peter say, we've yes. got to do it, and then mm. say, no, I'm not going to do it. We have to apply them. Just you have as... to apply them. It's pointless and worthless. Yeah, absolutely. Just as the musicians apply them in the studio, we should apply them here. So I'll, hang on a second. Well, let's so, do it then. Are you, are you shuffling them or just taking them as they come? Yeah. Oh, no, no, I'll take them as they come. Right, right. OK, yeah. Um, and I've never used these in my life, though David Bowie used them, and that's why we're doing all yes, this anyway. Yes, but, yes. OK, so uh, first one. All right. What does that say, Bob? Let's have a look. Go outside, shut the door. Go outside and shut the door. Well, if it's what Brian wants, then it's what Brian gets, isn't it? If he says do it, I think we should do it. I don't know if it helps any. You, you did that. That's really? great. I mean, it's what Brian and Peter yeah. want, isn't it? You know. Um, we'll try another one, Bob. Um, okay, say? next one. Um, what's that one? Don't be frightened of cliches. Whoa. Well, we always think outside the box, don't well, we, at the end of the day? We're struggling uh, with that one yeah. already, aren't we? Mm. Um, uh, another? Ooh. Use an old idea. Oh, blimey. <laughs> now he's second to Mickey, and we've been doing that. We've been doing that for years, Bob. Let's have a, yeah, a few. We'll have him. a few more. We'll let them through yeah. ours. Okay. Uh, do the words need changing? Um, oh, well, we've been through that as well, haven't we? Yeah, OK. All right, we'll leave them now. Yeah. We'll leave them now. Let's move on to the uh, story of Brian Eno. So it's, it's going to be a bit of a whopper, this one, isn't it? It is. It is a large story, isn't it? OK, so Bowie and Eno meet for the first time, 25th of June, 1972. Uh, Roxy Music and Trapeze are opening for Bowie at the Greyhound in Croydon. 
I've been there. So uh, when I was roadieing for the fall, they yeah. were opening for Susie and the Banshees. And that was, again, a kind of a legendary venue for me because I'd heard it being mentioned in the mm. careers of Bowie and also T-Rex and Motley Hoople. So I uh, hadn't been a roadie for the fall for that long. Oh. Not been to any venues in London apart from to watch Bowie, funnily enough. Yeah. Uh, and so ended up going there in 1970. It would have been early 1978. Uh, yeah, probably. Roxy had been recommended to Bowie by his mate, Mark Pritchett, who'd uh, gone to Dulwich College with the guitar player, Phil Manzanera. There were a thousand fans turned away that night mm. so it's obviously the momentum has really started going for Bowie there but yeah the 19th and 20th of August 1972 Roxy Music famously support Bowie at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park okay so let's get a bit to a bit of a bio when it comes to Brian Eno born in Woodbridge Suffolk 15th of May 1948 father William Arnold Eno is a postman yeah uh, his mother Maria Alphonsine Eno I mean a lot of people just think Eno is a bit of a stage name but it isn't as we you know this is his real name well I, yeah I'd never heard of anybody else called Eno apart no. from his brother uh, but I mean, some research into it shows uh, that it derives from the French Hugeno name Hino H-E-N-N-O-T and it is quite common in sorry alright there Eno is that, <laughs> they, is that they speaking so far? I, I think they do yeah, right, okay. yeah. so Roxy Music themselves formed in November 1970 by uh, Brian Ferry who was an unemployed ceramics uh, teacher at the time wasn't right. he and bassist Graham Simpson Andy Mackay joined later and introduced an old university mate Eno to the band. Yeah, he was described at that point in time as a non-musician, so mm. he wasn't supposed to be in the band. He was supposed to be like, you know, an extra, a, a boffin yes, kind of thing, wasn't he? Absolutely. And, you know, he could play the synth, which wasn't that hard, yeah. let's be honest, and he owned a Revox reel-to-reel tape recorder. So you're in, it's a little bit like, you know, if you've got a van, yeah. we've been through these things before, you know, if you've got a van or if your dad has got a garage that you can rehearse in, then you've got a good chance of joining the band like, on tambourine. Yeah, and, absolutely. And of course, there's those great stories, aren't there, about uh, the, the Roxy Music van and everybody be reading, like, the enemy and melody maker and he'd be having like scientific journals and all that stuff yeah, you know, just... like devouring these tomes brilliant but yeah he was called a technical advisor wasn't mm. he uh, such a fantastic band and they were so great to watch I remember seeing them doing Virginia playing on top of the pops and that yeah. I mean it wasn't it wasn't up there with Bowie doing Starman for me personally but it was mind blowing I mean if if you're looking at T-Rex they were doing it Motley Hoople still not gone really glam when I saw yeah. them doing uh, All the Young Dudes mm. with that clip on top of the pops but they looked incredible they they looked wilder probably yeah. than Bowie and the Spiders but and the song is great they are yeah. one of the my favourite bands and one of the great bands but I think part and parcel of the fact that they were so good to look at was uh, the start of the Enferino in a way well, yeah I mean you have you know as you say they all come from art school and the rest of it so they've got the visual aesthetic going on you've got Brian Ferry who I imagine would probably think oh I'm the bee's knees here everybody's going to be kind of just looking at me everybody was great to look at but on the other side of the stage of course you've got Eno there who's equally brilliant in his little leopard skin uh, robes and the rest of it just uh, this unusual character so it's sort of when it came to the fan base it could have split didn't it there were two brians in that band there were, and, and you know, the funny thing is, obviously, Brian Ferry would be pl- either just strutting his stuff or playing the piano, but he knows behind all these gadgets, making all these weird and wonderful noises, and just and with that long hair and those crazy costumes. There's a really brilliant documentary about Brian Eno, and he put it online, or oh, I don't know, it would have been uh, probably early January, and... It's, it's a 20-minute documentary about making Here Come the Warm Jets and there's loads of stuff on there. Chris Spedding's in there mm. recording some stuff for right. the album. Uh, but it also shows uh, the uh, the woman who made his costumes oh, and she's right. got his costumes behind her and oh, stuff wow. like that. And it, oh, it is, it's, it's a brilliant documentary. Just throwing that in, people really should watch it. But with uh, with Brian Eno being so interesting mm. and Brian Ferry being what he thought was a focal point in the band, that's a story. There was a frisson of uh, jealousy. Yeah, there was. And I have it on authority from a 
pretty famous musician who was there at the time. I won't name him, but he said, look, he was literally told, you know, Brian Ferry did issue an ultimatum of sorts to, you know, say, look, there is only one Brian in this band. Right, OK. Now, the irony uh, being that, that Brian Ferry, um, as we know, is a massive fan of the Velvet Underground. Yeah. OK, and so uh, and not quite a template. You wouldn't go perhaps that far, but mm. yeah, the, his favourite band anyway. Mm. And what happened with the Velvet Underground? We know that Lou Reed ended up getting jealous of John Cale's uh, profile within the band because, once again, he was perceived to be the interesting one. Yeah. The long black hair, the shades, the very beatnicky kind of uh, uh, dress sense that he mm. had, playing the viola and obviously turning things on its head. And Lou Reed was playing the guitar and being a bit straight. And he didn't like the fact that he wasn't the vocal point of the yeah, band and yeah. got rid of John Cale. So, yeah. I mean, even down to not only kind of imitating the template of the Velvet Underground, he also imitated the frisson of jealousy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jealous imitator. Wow, what are the chances? Well, the interesting thing, of course, is obviously Roxy went on to have a fantastic career. So this sort of split, Eno's suddenly a solo artist, as you just mentioned, Here Come the Warm Jets. It's a wonderful piece of work, recorded September 73, released in January 74. All of Roxy are on there, apart from Brian, Brian Ferry. Ferry. Well, yeah, I would imagine Brian Eno said there's only one Brian in this band, <laughs> but Chris Spedding's on there, just one of the great guitarists. Yeah. Buster Cherry Jones, who went on to play with Gang of Four and Talking Heads yeah. and all other people. John Wetton, King Crimson and Roxy Music, funnily enough. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Watson, who had uh, appeared with Bowie and Roxy Music at the, uh, the Rainbow as well. And Robert Fripp. Yeah, whose other career was intertwined with Eno's for a long time doing the experimental ambient recordings, wouldn't it? Well, you know, I mean, and this is a really important part as well because Eno's work on Babies on Fire mm. is incendiary and, yeah. and just remarkable. And obviously that was pretty much one of the uh, the points in Eno's life where he just noted, this guy is so great and yeah. we need to work together. And, and he does, as we'll find out, but he also gets introduced to Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. Just a word about the friendship with Robert Fripp. I mean, he was, I'm lucky enough to meet both of them and interview both of them and Fripp has this thing where I mean he was great uh, which we will get to later on in the series but you know he could talk for a long long time if you want him to talk about a specific subject he is off and he will give you everything that you want so we, we were doing this and then at the end I'd brought along a couple of albums for him to sign as you'd imagine one of them being No Pussyfooting which is the one with Eno and he did say to me very very politely oh you know I don't don't you and obviously he has this thing about he didn't want to put his autograph out so people can sell them on eBay and the rest and I respect that and all the rest of it. Sure. so he said I'll tell you what I will do I also, at this point, perhaps as a bit of leverage, I used to take around these very, very old-fashioned autograph books and get them signed for my two kids. So anybody I ever met, you know, they would sign this yeah. thing. So I did say, oh, what about these, you know, for, for my kids? And they're only, you know, 10, 11. I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. And he opened both books and he signed, but instead of writing Robert Fripp, he signed Brian Eno. How's that? And he signed my album, Brian Eno. <laughs> so he? when I met Eno, which would be about maybe 18 months after this, I told him this story. He found it quite funny. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here we and go. he signed it, Robert Fripp. So I have this <laughs> album at home, which is signed by both of them, but not in their handwriting. Oh, that's brilliant. Just Absolutely wonderful. brilliant. I mean, I met, I met Robert Fripp. Um, I met him, well, I met him twice, funny enough. The first time I met him, he wasn't aware of the fact that he'd met me. Uh, but Peter Gabriel was playing at the Hammersmith Odeon, oh, yeah, as yeah. it will be forever known to yeah. us lot. And, oh, yeah, we went down the sides of the stage door and a bit awestruck, even just then thinking about Bowie. So it would be 1977, I think. Mm. And I just said to my mate, I'm going in. So I was 16, threw my uh, denim jacket over my shoulder, thinking that would make me automatically look like a roadie, right. even though I still wasn't shaving. Yeah. And I was going down all the little catacombs and everything, and then I just ended up on the stage. It was just like, <laughs> so I, got, I turned, I was like, oh my God, I'm on the same stage at the Ziggy's Last Stand, and, oh, and it blew my mind. And then just out of nowhere, there was a little tap on the shoulder, 
and I turned round and Robert Fripp sat on a stool with his black beauty, Gibson Les Paul, wow. in his in his lap mm. uh, and his aunt beside him. And I just turned around and went, yeah, mate. And he said, uh, would you mind just moving over slightly that way? I'm trying to communicate with the salmon. Sure thing, mate. And then scarpered <laughs> as quick as I possibly could. And that was Robert Fripp. Oh. And that tour, he played behind a curtain. Mm. You see, you couldn't see him play. Ah, is that right? Yeah, so the whole band were there to be seen. And you would think, oh, where's that coming from? Where's that noise coming from? What's yeah. that guitar like? Where's that? Who's doing that? And it was Robert Fripp, and he was hiding away. He didn't want to take any of the uh, attention away from Peter Gabriel. Wow, I didn't realise he's behind a curtain. That's a bit like that story about uh, Jimi Hendrix going on stage with Engelbert Humperdinck, isn't it? And playing behind a curtain. Oh, did he? <laughs> he didn't want to take uh, Engelbert's glow away from him. Well, who would? Well, who would? Absolutely. I and the other time we met him was when he came and did uh, the Frippertronics on the, uh, the Radio One programme with Mark Radcliffe and oh. I, which, which was great. But yeah, so that's well, I've, I've met him twice. But he, but he is great. At the end of the uh, doing the Frippertronics night, the phone went. It was midnight, and yeah. uh, and there was a hello, um, who's that? Uh, it's Mark Riley here. Can I help? Oh yes, um, it's Toya here. Uh, could I possibly have a chat with Robert? Oh, how sweet. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> Robert, Robert, your wife's on the phone. Uh, yeah, a great, oh, a great memory for me. Just great. Going back to Eno, then where are we? So his second solo album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, released November '74. So he's on a roll here. He's releasing the a couple of albums a year and by this time of course he's a creative force he gets onto Bowie's radar as, a, as an artist as well at the same time third album Another Green World that was released in the September of 75 and it was that was getting more and more minimalist mm. wasn't it you know yeah. and, and more towards what became known as ambient music which is he you know so associated with yeah and the title track of course it was under the theme tune for Arena which was the BBC uh, 2 programme wasn't it yeah I mean it's only about two minutes long yeah. the piece isn't it but it's really really beautiful yeah. and it was also discreet music as yeah. well so those two albums really kind of pivotal so uh, Bowie met up with Eno one day at his uh, Wembley when he was playing Wembley in May 76 which I know you were lucky enough to go and see yeah. uh, and started you know thinking about how, what can I do with this guy how can we collaborate in a way that's really meaningful and different and the thing is, I, the, I love this because, as we know, Bowie uh, had been financially strapped for cash, you know, mm. and, the, and the Berlin years and all that, where they were talking about not having enough money to do what they want to do. Yeah. But even then, this is, uh, Brian Eno described the fact that he thought that Bowie was trying to duck having a hugely successful career. Yeah. He just wanted to be adventurous, and so he wanted to make enough money to live and hopefully, you know, to, be, to live comfortably. Mm. But he wanted to take a lot of risks as well and not just take the easy route. And you could argue that maybe he did that, but did it brilliantly with Let's Dance yes. but he certainly wasn't ready for it in 1976 No he wasn't certainly but you know he, he had the opportunity as you say he could have kind of taken the money could have done the really obvious thing and just peddled the old hits and the rest of it but he wasn't interested in that at all We should also also mention one of the things that uh, turned Eno onto ambient music he, he was involved in a car accident he was knocked over by a car wasn't he? And whilst he was reconvening, there was a, a, a rotten old mono stereo set that he was listening to, and that gave him the first sort of ideas of perhaps doing, perhaps there's something in this, we could do some ambient music. Yeah, it was a stereo setup, but part of it wasn't working, so he was just getting various little feeds coming mm. through here and there, but by no means a full picture, and he liked it. Yeah. And so he, he thought, right, well, I'm, I'm going to run with this one, you know. He's such a brilliant, adventurous character, and the two of them together, and we've mentioned before that they, they say that they uh, they would only ever talk in Peter Cook and Dudley right. Moore, Derek yeah. and Clive voices, and great. all that kind of stuff. And we, yeah, as a measure of Eno's importance to Bowie, I know Tony Visconti has described Eno as Bowie's Zen master, hasn't he? Yeah. So he's there, this kind of guiding force. So we started off using the uh, oblique strategies, yeah. didn't we, Bobby? I'll just let me get another one here. Oh, go on, mate. Um, 
do well, something boring. <laughs> We've been doing that. Well, for, we're on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're experts at that, you know. Don't you tell us our job. Uh, but so, the, if, there are, we've got them all here. Like I say, what's the next one? Don't break the silence. Well, we do that well, occasionally. Yeah. Give way to your worst impulse. Oh. You know, that's the, the lead yeah. card off it. Um, okay, that's a long one. How would you have done it? Right. Honour thy error as a hidden intention. Ah, that's a good one. That was used on low, wasn't it? I know that was used. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Repetition is a form of change. Mm, so, and you know, and emphasise the flaws was a very yeah. important one. And also use an unacceptable colour, which reminds me of um, Tony Hancock in The Rebel, where they ask him about <laughs> what he thinks of a certain painting, and he's bluffing his way through. And he said, well, to me, the colours are the yeah, wrong shape. The wrong shape. Brilliant. And everybody <laughs> loves it. Honour thy error as a hidden intention. Yeah, that's what just mentioned. like that. Oh, yeah, yeah of absolutely. So, as I say, all this stuff is going on, really just to get the thought process different. You know, people sort of being more intuitive in the studio. That was what it's all about. And it certainly worked for Bowie, didn't it? It did. Various examples going on here. There is, of course, Boys Keep Swinging, which I love, which has the most weird instrumental break. That's because the Oblique Strategies card sort of instructed everybody to swap instruments. Yeah, well, I think they didn't all swap, did they? But I know Carlos Alomar plays drums on it. Yeah. And Dennis Davies plays bass on it. Yeah. And so, the, um, the as we know, the rhythm section to a record is the core of it, isn't it? Mm. That's what it's all yes. based on. And so it, that's really shaking it up by making... Because like Carlos Alomar, you know, musicians can generally play other instruments, yeah, yeah, but obviously course. not as well as their first instrument, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, so he can hold the beat down and but it's got this really great kind of garage feel to it, almost yeah. like it's a, a youngster playing it because yeah. he'd not actually, you know, he'd not become kind of studio session musician proficiency or That's whatever. That's right, yeah. It's very visceral, isn't it? So Bowie had said of Eno, Brian really opened my eyes to the idea of processing to the abstract of communication. So you can see this on low, recorded, you know, September, October 1976 at the Chateau de Reville, just outside Paris, produced by Tony Visconti. But massive contributions from Brian Eno. Yeah, and it's great. He's never he's never claimed to be the producer or anything else, but he's gone in there and done a, a really important job on the whole thing. Mm. He even got a writing credit on Warzawa, didn't he? Yeah, he no. did, he did. There was a story that circulated around that time that the chateau was haunted, wasn't it? There was one particular mm. room that was haunted by the ghost of, um, oh, I can't think Elton of it. Elton John. Elton John, that's yeah. who it was. He'd been there a few years before, hadn't he? And Eno had this room, and Bowie had said, yeah, there's a corner of that room where it just stays dark all the time, no matter when the sun's flying through. It's all. So I asked Eno about this. Obviously, the real pressing stuff that everybody wants to know, and he said he had no idea. He doesn't recollect. He said the thing started as a story that maybe Visconti half-remembered, and like a lot of things, it just gathers a bit of pace, right. like a snowball over the years. As far as he could remember, he wasn't woken up in the middle of the night uh, and didn't Scream, as Visconti may have mentioned in the past. So they won't be making a film about that episode in his life. Nothing to show whatsoever. So heroes, the same team, the same roles, really. You know, but the important point, which we alluded to earlier mm. on, was when uh, David Bowie wanted a guitarist, and Brian Eno says, "Why not? I give Robert Fripp a call." And I think Fripp was in New York at the time with Peter Gabriel, wasn't he? And he just said, "Look, you've got the instruction. We want to come to Berlin to play some hairy rock and roll." Yeah, we kind of covered that a little yeah. bit in the Berlin thing, didn't we? But uh, yeah, and uh, again, you mentioned the oblique strategy cards were in there. He worked on Lodger as well, mm. which was the last LP uh, that Bowie worked with uh, on, you know, until One Outside, yeah. which came out in 1995. Uh, yeah, again, the flashcards, all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. But I love this. Uh, when they were doing that, he said to Reeve Gabrels, he, he, he gave him the instruction to give him some motivation. He said, mm. OK, you are the disgruntled member of a South African rock band. Play the notes that were suppressed. Oh, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, funny. And of course, Bowie, uh, you know, is credited as producer on that, alongside Bowie and co-producer David Richards. 
you know, obviously love Bowie. I mean, one of the things when I did meet Eno, one of the things I was told, as often happens when you interview somebody of that sort of magnitude, don't talk about Roxy, don't talk about Bowie. They were the two instructions from right. the sort of PR people. And of course, you're there and you think, can I slip something in here? He willingly talked about Roxy and, and the Velvet Underground and the influence of all of the art school and all that kind of stuff. And we got to Bowie and he was talking about singers and how they adopt this sort of method acting way of performing. And he said the perfect example was Bowie. So of course, you know, we're in. And he talked about watching him in the studio during outside and just inhabiting the becoming these characters and he said it was a real lesson for Eno in that you could sort of you know become something you you weren't but you could make yourself into another being to enhance the song you were working on it got, sort of went that deep you know that's the actor thing isn't it in Bowie which he has admitted you know he's just adopting characters which mm. you know he's, everybody knows that kind of stuff anyway but I mean yeah I mean he's always on Twitter he's always so fond of Bowie mm. uh, and there's this here as well which he, which relates to David Bowie's death as, um, as experienced by Brian Eno uh, so while Bowie's death came as a surprise to Eno the producer re- revealed that Bowie hinted that he knew his time left was short in their last correspondence. I received an email from him seven days ago. It was funny as always, and a surreal, looping through word games and allusions and all the usual stuff we did. It ended with this sentence, Thank you for our good times, Brian. They will never rot. And it was signed, Dawn, D-A-W-N. And and Eno ends his statement. I realise now he was saying goodbye. I mean, he would sign off with these invented names, wouldn't he? Mr Showbiz, Milton Keynes, Rhoda Borrocks, the Duke of Ear. (laughs) Rhoda (laughs) Borrocks. I didn't know that. I'm going to nick that one. Oh, that's so great. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. E is for the Edgar Broughton band. So we're looking at like David Bowie's life through the microscope here and, and uh, both finding out loads of things that we didn't know. Mm. And uh, as you would expect, somebody was so steeped in music, he was going to all the rock and roll clubs. He was really mad on the pretty things and the stones and uh, and, and this all the Anthony Newley stuff as well. Yeah. All very, very kind of confusing and, yeah. and eclectic, you would have to say. Uh, but one of the bands that he did have some dealings with were the Egg de Broughton band. Yeah. Now, uh, again, I may have mentioned this previously, but I did go and 
see the Egg de Broughton band. It was a science teacher, Mr Sheridan, took us all to the Hard Rock, which Bowie had opened. I can't get over that. So mm. a science teacher... Well, part he knew of the... Egg de Broughton. Oh, I see. All right. And so, wow. and, we, and we were like, probably, I don't know, 16 at the time. He said, yeah, I'm going to go to this gig. Any of you fancy it? And knowing that we love music. And we went, oh. and it was the only time we went to the Hard Rock. And, uh, it, and it was very... Uh, it was very, very gnarly, the was set. It? Yeah, it really was. <laughs> um, but, you know, so the first record that I can find of Bowie and Egda Broughton meeting each other, possibly, anyway, uh, was an eight-hour benefit concert at Middle Earth in Covent Garden on the 19th of May, 1968. And it was a benefit for a hippie cafe called Gandalf's Garden. <laughs> this is quite famous, isn't it? Run by a guy called Buzz Murray who also published an underground magazine of the same name. I believe now Muz Murray can be found touring the world as, and I quote, a mantra master. Whatever really? that is. Right, yeah. OK. Well, well, right, also on the bill that night, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Junior's Eyes, of course, have their own Bowie connotation. Uh, Edgar Broughton, third-year band, Hapshash and the Coloured Coat, and the compare... John Peel, of course. The omnipresent, yeah. So, uh, yeah, David performs his Tibetan mime routine, okay, mm. and uh, to music being pumped through the PA. So it was that was actually just a, for Bowie, at least, a trial run, because he had a, a big show coming up at the Royal Festival yeah, Hall. Yeah, that's right. I also re- understand that uh, when Edgar Broughton Band played the Brighton Dome, so this would be about a year, so 1969, Bowie was sort of bottom of the bill doing his mime thing, but he did get on stage with them later on when the power went off, apparently, and did a little jam. Right, okay, yeah. uh, and Another one was when Bowie was playing with just Mick Ronson on bass, mm. uh, and I think that might have been August 1970, South End on Sea anyway, so uh, Rock with Shelter, mm. and Bowie gets up and does some mime with him. Yeah. So uh, at that time, okay, so it, as you say, through some mime shapes, he'd done previously sort of like, a, you might say that Bowie was a, almost a sort of prototype of Stacia from Hawkwind, but with less visuals, perhaps. And more clothes, mm. probably, yeah. Certainly. Also on the bill was Fat Harry. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Roger Ruskin Spear of the Bonzos, Surly Bird. Surly Bird turned into Cursal Flyers, didn't they? Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. okay, great. And Michael Chapman, who uh, we love Michael Chapman, don't we? Oh, yes. A fully qualified survivor. He's got a legion of wonderful albums. His last album is called 50, so great. Yeah. Uh, but on fully qualified survivor, he did have um, Mick Ronson playing guitar. Mm. And the story is, as I understand it, that Bowie did ask Michael Chapman to join his band at one point, and he recommended Ronson. That's, That's right. one way around that I've, I've heard it. So um, John Cambridge also recommended Ronson yeah. to Bowie so I don't know but anyway uh, Michael Chapman said of Bowie about him doing the mime within all of this he said it's a bit strange for an audience that had come out for live music and the sunshine <laughs> so absolutely well you know whatever they made of it it was it was, it was the times so we go on now to the 19th of June 1971 billed as the Macrobiotic Festival which really is uh, Glastonbury isn't it which we will talk about yeah. In G. Yeah. On the bill that day, Hawkwind, Arthur Brown, Fairport, Gong, Traffic, Brinsley Schwartz, and of course, Edgar Broughton Band. Yeah, so I mean, there will be lots of bands that you could mention who have just in passing kind of mm. had uh, some dealings with David Bowie or shared a bill. This podcast would not be, I don't know, anything between 30 and 40 episodes. There'd be a few hundred. Yeah, of course. So we'll spare everybody that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the one thing that... Uh, <laughs> kind of perplexes a lot of Bowie fans. If you're looking at a photograph of the famous <laughs> post-Ziggy show, yes. okay, the, you can look round and you can see all the people on there. So you've got Ringo Starr mm. and his wife Maureen. You've got yeah. Lulu there. Jeff Beck's there. Naturally, he'd been performing. There's a model there, Celia Hammond. Bianca Jagger is there. Yeah. Bowie and Angie Bowie, of course. And there's a very drunk-looking character in a white silk jacket and he's got a lace top on and a rose in his lapel. And everybody going, who's that... 
Yeah. Who's that there? And, and even in some uh, books that I've got, you know, hugely respected books, mm. uh, I have it down in one particular one as Cat Stevens. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not. And there are various kind of poses here, but the most famous one you've got, it is, of course, Edgar Broughton. And he's sort of looking a bit wild, as you say, worse for wear, this big bushy beard and hair all over the place. I think it might be a carnation in his in his jacket. And he's there's a wonderful shot of him. He's just above Ringo. Ringo sat down and Edgar's just up there. And it looks like he's just about to kind of barf on Ringo's head. He doesn't look well at all. No. But then again, he'd not been like Jeff Beck had been working that night and everybody else had kept themselves together. But Edgar Broughton was just obviously, very, very obviously on yeah. a jolly. And we need to mention also there is one other guy in uh, in the photograph. <laughs> we don't know who that is. If anybody knows who the other guy is who isn't Edgar Broughton, yeah. then please drop us a line. You know, you can get hold of us on Twitter. Yeah, anyway. it was really puzzling me that. I did try and find out. So the, the shot is you've got on the back row, you've got Bowie next to Angie and then next to Angie is this mystery man. So let's yeah. find out who it was. But 73 is an interesting year for Edgar Broughton and Bowie because I know he admired uh, Bowie admired his guitar prowess and there was a story that he asked his manager to get hold of Edgar to play guitar on the sessions for Diamond Dogs specifically Candidate right okay so I mean but it didn't happen for whatever reason well I mean he's obviously a fan of the band anyway and and, and previous to all this maybe even the reason that they, they'd uh, rekindled this friendship or whatever and him being at the party and all that kind of stuff but uh, he had wanted just before uh, for the Edgar Broughton band to back Iggy Pop on Raw Power. Which Bowie was producing, of course. Which Bowie was producing. In, in the end, he didn't. He got James Williamson and, and, and the other Stooges. So, so yeah, obviously a mutual respect there. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. E is for Ernie Johnson. Now, this was a David Bowie play for radio or TV. That's right, it? yes. Um, or, or was it film and TV? Uh, I think it was um, possibly film, radio and TV. Anything quite sure. Yeah, yeah, well, um, anyway, we, uh, the, the, the following information we need to credit, as we always do, uh, various people, but Nick Pegg's brilliant book, yeah. The Complete David Bowie, which mm. gets up, if you don't know it, it, it's just like so methodical and brilliant. It's mm. got everything in there that you need to know, really. Yeah. And uh, and he updates it uh, as, as Bowie's career un- unfolds. Now, of course, uh, David is no longer with us. I don't know whether there'll be any more Complete David Bowies or whether he will need to keep on top of all of the stuff that gets released posthumously. Yeah. I don't know, sure. but Ernie Johnson. So this is what uh, Nick Pegg uh, writes in his book. Although mentioning Kenneth Pitt's memoir, The Pitt Report, Bowie's unrealised 1968 rock opera, in inverted commas, remained an almost complete mystery until a tape of it came up for auction at Christie's in 1996. Mm. It went unsold and has yet to see the light of day, uh, but details of ten songs emerged in the pages of the record collector around the same time. Under the collective title Ernie Johnson, the linking narrative seems every bit as tenuous as a non-linear gothic drama hypercycle of one outside, and its colourful parade of characters bears a superficial similarity to the style of rock opera projects devised by Bowie's sometimes idols, The Who. It is worth mentioning at this point that obviously Bowie loved The Who, of course, and so in 66, so this is a couple of years after that, The Who had done a mini-opera, well, Pete Townsend mini-opera called A Quick One While He's Away, mm. which is, uh, you know, a bit of a prototype for this. Also in 68, the year of Ernie Johnson, you've got The Pretty Things, another major Bowie influence, doing SF Sorrow, which to me is still the best, you know, out Tommy's Tommy, is still the best rock opera in my view. Well, it's, it's, it's deemed to be the first rock opera, yes, isn't it? Certainly. So, I mean, I don't know if anybody's got any kind of proper uh, timelines on it, but that's that's the way it's presented yeah. anyway. So the story, as we understand it, was explained by uh, Nicholas Pegg in his book about Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson, 19, invites friends to a party at which he intends to commit suicide. One of the guests, Tiny Tim, describes it as a most exquisite party, darlings. 
everyone was there. They busted me for masquerading as a man. Uh, and Ernie reminisces about past loves. He has a, a racist conversation with a tramp. He addresses himself in a mirror and he takes a trip to Carnaby Street to uh, buy a tie in which to kill himself. So it's yeah. not the cheeriest scenario. It's really dark, isn't it? And and uh, again, it's not known whether Bowie had Tiny Tim as in tiptoe through the tulips <laughs> in mind with this or whether it's something yeah. else altogether. But yeah. it's a bit bizarre. But the, yeah, the songs uh, that were within there, there's one called Where's the Loo? <laughs> Which is probably not, I mean, not having heard it, I can't profess to know whether it would be Davy Bowie's finest hour or not, right. but probably not. But it's, it's said to prefigure Queen Bitch anyway. I wonder if it's a sort of play on words of Lou Reed. I wonder if it's a sort of references him somehow. Well, yeah, you could be right. Yeah, I'm yeah, thinking you know. about it. Yeah, good point, Bobbert. Uh, other songs are Season Folk, Just One Moment, Sir, which is apparently the racist tramp song. Right. Uh, various Times of Day. Mm. And also uh, the last three songs are Ernie Boy, a monologue in which Ernie addresses himself in the mirror while smoking a joint yeah. including the surprising foretaste of modern love mm. in his spoken introduction I'm not running away, I know who I am, I know what I'm made of this is my day uh, and a final untitled number. Okay so the 35 minute Ernie Johnson tape probably dated February 68 was accompanied by a five page manuscript detailing uh, camera shots, stage directions, all that kind of stuff suggesting that Bowie you know, did envisage this as you mentioned as a film or television play so right. he had the idea in his head all pre and it was uh, recorded, actually, at David Bowie's home, wasn't it? Yeah, On a yeah. four-track recorder mm. as well. Um, yeah, and uh, what does it say here? It said uh, it features a surprisingly sophisticated multi-track recording with layered vocal overdubs and expansive instrumentation. Ernie Johnson clearly offers compelling evidence that Bowie's consistent preoccupation with theatrical acts and self-immolation did not begin with rock and roll suicide. It's interesting, we've discussed it, haven't we? You know, this uh, you know, idolising Tony Newley for so long and he finally gets to sort of do his rock opera with Diamond Dogs. Obviously, it was just itching away at Bowie for many years, wasn't constantly, it? Constantly, constantly. And, uh, yeah, again, uh, kudos and uh, yeah, uh, everything to uh, Nick Pegg. Good work, fella. Mm. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Here's for extras. Hey, now, Bob, oh, leave it... I, Oh, oh, I see what you mean. No, extras. Yes, a TV programme. Yeah, what With else you? would I mean? Oh, no, oh, no for goodness know. sake. So we're talking about Ricky Gervais here, of course. Bowie appeared on extras in 2006. People familiar with the uh, programme itself, there's a show within a show called uh, When the Whistle Blows, which was Ricky Gervais's character Andy had this awful, really nasty early 70s style sitcom that nobody liked, but was popular for some reason. But everybody else, all the press and everybody else were just slagging it off really badly. Well, see, I, I never really got into this programme, though I did watch the, the episode with Bowie. But, mm. I, I mean, I was well aware. Obviously, The Office, I did enjoy that an awful lot. Uh, but uh, it was uh, brought to our attention whilst uh, The Office was uh, up and running. Yes. That Ricky Gervais had been, I think it was the social sec at Yulu, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. And he yeah. managed the band Suede. Yeah. For, uh, for an early part of their career. And, uh, mm. and, of course, Suede was so influenced by David Bowie. And, and indeed, there was a front cover shot, wasn't there, of uh, Brett Anderson and David Bowie. That's right. uh, so, uh, even then, you, the signs were there that he was yeah. a, a big Bowie fan. Definitely. I mean, he idolised Bowie growing up. He said, he, he put my life in colour. He made me believe you can do anything you want to do. There is one story about him going to see Bowie at his apartment in New York and being greeted with this sort of 3D Picasso-esque sculpture in the middle of the room and being really amazed by it, this beautiful piece of art. And Bowie just coming up and said, yeah, yeah, how'd you like it? Oh, yeah, my daughter likes to hit that with a hammer. Right, you know, okay. he's had this attitude. So, of course, he's preparing this episode of Extras. He thinks, right, I'll give Bowie a ring 
And he phoned Bowie up and said, look, I'd like you to do this little cameo. It's a little bit improvised, but really it's sort of centred around a song that you do. Can you do me a version of Life on Mars or something retro like that? Right. Of course, Bowie's saying, well, yeah, OK, I'll just knock another one of those out for you. You see, now, the very telling part about this is that... I. I knew David Bowie a little bit, and I met him nine times, might have been ten times. Uh, but that is the way he was. He was so affable and mm. not kind of uh, self-aware, really. He was just a really, really genuinely nice fella who was game for a laugh and had lots yeah. of mischief in him. Yeah. So you, you would imagine that a lot of people think of David Bowie, you just ring him up and say, oh, you do this thing where you make a bit of a twerp of yourself yeah. on the programme, and, and Bowie thinking, I'm David Bowie, excuse me. Yeah. No. Like, oh, yeah, sure, mate, no bother. Yeah, well, that was great thing that Gervais said he said it wasn't he wasn't like he was talking to David Bowie it was just David Jones you know from Brixton it was just yeah. another guy you know he'd led this incredible life in fact to talk about mischief and the rest of it he said when he did phone him up obviously he was really nervous about phoning Bowie up there was a long long pause before he picked up the phone his first words were sorry I was eating a banana Right. So imagine that, how great. <laughs> okay. So he's on extras and he's sat at the piano at some industry bash. The scene has him, Bowie, sort of making or improvising this song based around Ricky Gervais's character, Andy. And of course, you know, it's called uh, Little Fat Man and the lyrics about Chubby Little Loser. Uh, with his pug-nosed face, sold his soul for a shot of fame and all the rest of it. It's just some horrible derogatory put-down about uh, this character and Bowie's just off with it. And everybody else is laughing, of course, apart from Ricky Gervais's character who's just shamefaced in the corner. Did Bowie write the song? I believe he did. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Fame, Susie Fussy, Freddie Beretti, Fashion. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.